Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. In Africa, when an elder dies, a library burns. We've all heard this phrase, or some version of it, but not all of us know who uttered it. Well, it was Amadou Ampateba, and the year was 1960, that famous year of Africa, when more than one dozen African countries, including Mali, Ba's homeland, gained independence. But with that statement, Ba was cautioning us to remember the fragility of what could be lost amid the rush for change in this new era of independence. By the end of his long life, Ba himself had become one of Africa's most famous elders, and to borrow his own phrase, one of its most expansive libraries. Today, we are speaking with Jean Garani and Ralph Austin, who are here to discuss Hampate Ba's newly translated early memoirs, published in English under the title Amkulel, the Fula Boy. The book was originally published 30 years ago in French at the end of Ba's long life and was awarded the Grand Prix Littéraire d'Afrique Noire in 1991. Jean Garani, who translated the memoir, is a professor of French and comparative literature at the University of South Carolina. Ralph Austin is Professor Emeritus of African History at the University of Chicago. Jean and Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So why don't we begin with you both introducing yourselves to us. Tell us how you became interested in Hampate Ba and his career, um, and in particular in this project. Jean, we should begin with you as the translator of this work. Well, um, I, I think became enamored of uh, Amadou Hampate Ba after I read Van Grin, like many people have read. Um, it got me interested in the role of um, indigenous African interpreters. Um, so I had, I've always had a foot in translation as well as in critical literary studies. Um, and I've translated two books previous to this. And um, so I, I got very interested in this figure of Van Grin um, and began trying to do research on the question of uh, indigenous African interpreters, which brought me to the work of Ralph Austin, um, who has done a lot of work in this area and who had written about Amadou Hampate Ba. Um, and uh, so while I was you know, thinking about trying to continue this work in the field of translation studies, um, I, I think somewhat like Ralph, decided to you know, go to the, the archives, uh, L'Archive d'Outre-mer in Aix-en-Provence to see what I could find out 
about the uh, indigenous African interpreters. And um, I was told, as I was mentioning earlier, that um, Professor Austin from the University of Chicago had already done that work, and therefore I wasn't going to get a whole lot of help from uh, the staff at the time. Um, and but they did, you know, kind of point me to the database. And when I did my research in the database, up comes again Amadou Hampateba. Um, I ended up going to Senegal also to the Ifan and doing some research there. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, I did find some information and, but um, uh, so this is how I, I think part of what I wanted to do was to make a contribution um, to the field of Amadou Hampateba studies and also to translation studies by undertaking this translation. And I can talk more about it later, but I'll let Ralph have a little uh, you know, time. Well, I came to this by a rather indirect route. Um, in, when I was in college, I, I, I majored in something called history and literature. So I had some interest in, in literature and had done a few. I, I actually wrote about uh, another memoir, but, you know, saw it presented as a novel, L'Enfant Noir, the, the, dark, the, the Dark Child. But uh, that, that, you know, that's a very different kind of book you asked to possibly compare them in the question before maybe we can get back to that. But in general, I was I, I was a specialist in former German colonies. I worked in uh, Tanzania and in Cameroon. Um, and I, I did a little, I, I got involved in Cameroon a little bit in the study of an oral epic. So I published about that. But uh, the way I got to Hampa de Baas through, this is very much the sort of story he would tell, through an elder man named Henri Brunswick who was one of the pioneers of African history in France. And at one point he stayed at our house when he was here for some kind of conference. I spent a good deal of time with him. And so on. As, as a gift appreciation, he sent me Van Graaff, the, the, the French version, hadn't been translated to English yet. So I got interested in there. And then I, you know, I just, uh, then, some, then I was asked by <clears throat> the uh, research in African literature to write something about Amkulel, um, so I got into that, and I, you know, at first I was kind of frightened up because I thought of Hamba Deba writing all these texts about religion and mysteries and, you know, his own sort of versions of Islam, which are not really as widely read as, as his, the, what he considered really just, um, I think, recordings of his dinner table conversations. I mean, he was a, I never met him, unfortunately, but uh, I, one person I worked with, Louis Brenner, did know him fairly well and actually had gave me some of his correspondence with a French, with, Mon, with Theodore Monod, which was an important figure in his life. And uh, he, he was a great raconteur. You can get that from all kinds of uh, accounts of him. I mean, he, was, he, was, he knew a lot of people and they wrote about him, they were very impressed. And so this, he didn't take, he didn't publish, by the time he published these memoirs, he was quite old, um, even though they're about, his youth, and if you think of them as coming of this, Uncle L is a coming of age story, a Bildungsroman. Um, usually, those are written when as a first novel, which is true of the Dark Child, for instance. Uh, but in his case, it was something he sort of reflected on an old age when he was mostly living in Paris and not, uh, or 
to some extent, Abidjan, but not really so active in research anymore. He was, you know, the, the second, the, the further volumes of this book, there are three volumes. One that has been published, and I hope Gene is going to work on it future um, about his career in the in the Wimong, it's called Wimong Commandant, which it, and it's about his uh, career as an as a clerk, I would say. He didn't, did interpret, but he wasn't officially an interpreter by the way well, that well, the was. Let's talk a little bit about his career because I'm sure that people listening maybe aren't as well versed as you both in his story. So this memoir is about the early part of his life, but maybe uh, Gene, you can give us a sketch of his long life. What what was you know his origins, and then where did he go throughout the 20th century? Because he's, his life really spans 90 percent, I think, of the 20th century. So what I know about. Um... Amadou Hampate Ba comes from, I would say, you know, the reading and research, and I'm sure Ralph also knows this very well. Part of what, what happens when you translate a book, though, is you become very intimately, you know it so well, you know, it's like, um, like somehow you know the person from the inside out, which is a very interesting feeling, although, of course, I've never met him. Um, so I know what I've read from his writing and from the research. But as you said, as you, as you introduced this, um, he became known later as the, the person who had said that famous saying, when, a, um, when an elder dies, a, a library burns, and it came in a speech that he had given to UNESCO. Once he had become a recognized uh, you know, collector of oral traditional tales and, um, and of, and of other um, works from the oral tradition. Um, and what I say in my introduction to the work is that I think he became more and more well-known uh, once he, I mean, as he expresses in the two volumes of his uh, memoirs, uh, he worked for the colonial administration, but at a certain point he ran into trouble because of his uh, religious beliefs and affiliations. And out of his friendship with Theodore uh, Monod, uh, Monod brought him to the IFAN uh, in um, Dakar, which was the Institut, at the time it was called Institut Francais d'Afrique Noire. It was later changed to Institut Fondamental d'Afrique Noire. But once he began to work in that institute, he ended up working with some very well-known French anthropologists. Um, and so his research into these oral traditions, especially Fula oral traditions, um, ended up being published and, and in a way co-published with some of the famous anthropologists of the time. Um, and so I think that that's how, I think that was the route um, to, to kind of his fame. Um, you know, as a scholar and ethnographer. And as Ralph had said before, he was working in the colonial administration and he used the, 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 the time uh, working in the administration to also collect the, these oral traditions. So um, in the, the first volume of Amkulel covers um, not only his life, but it begins with his own prehistory, and that is the defeat of the Fula Empire of Messina by the Tupuleur, um, and then the rise of the, the French colonial um, 
you know, empire and administration in what they called the French Sudan at the time. And so the volume one goes from um, that time period, which precedes his life up until 1922, that's volume one. Volume two is called Oui, mon commandant. Um, and that could be translated as at your service, uh, commandant, or yes, commandant, which is uh, the translator's dilemma is how are you going to translate that? Because that, that is my, my project at the moment is to translate the next volume. Um, but that begins when he's 22 and has been sent off to work in Burkina Faso, which at the time was called Otvolta, um, as a kind of punishment for not being as obedient um, as the colonial administrators would have liked. Um, and so volume two is the story of his work um, um, in the you know, colonial administration. I believe it ends in 1942, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Ralph? More or less, yeah. Yeah. So um, Ralph has also written another essay about, you've written an essay about um, his time in, in, uh, in the section dedicated in um, the Oui, mon commandant book. Yeah. Um, so he has a very deep analysis of uh, sort of what's going on there. Um, the relationship with colonial officials, what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so uh, I'm sort of straying from, from what I meant to uh, say, but. Well, what I find, I mean, one thing that, that you brought up and which I find so remarkable in the kind of long span of his lifetime is he's born more or less around 1900, maybe give yeah. or take a year and, and he dies in the early 1990s, I believe. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and what he sees and what his life is in some ways subject to these flicks of fate, as he calls them, is really the rise and fall of empires. I mean, the, the Tukulur Empire, the Empire of Messina, the, um, the French Empire, uh, the collapse of the French Empire, a neo-colonial French Empire, uh, American Empire, you know, it's just kind of nested throughout his life. And I think it really contributes to his, his cosmopolitan ability to tell stories to everyone, to connect to everyone, because he's always kind of been in these moments of tremendous upheaval. Um, maybe Ralph, you can tell us a little bit about how he begins you know, this volume of his memoirs in the, this period of the late 19th century and, and why he thinks it's important to introduce the reader to his own prehistory before arriving at his, his proper birth? Well, I mean, the story he tells about his, his immediate ancestors is really fascinating, very complicated. Um, it's not, I mean, he got this obviously from other people. He didn't, these are not things he witnessed, but it is presented as a kind of prequel to his own um, biography. And it's, it's very complicated because in the conflict between these two empires, the, the um, Messina Empire was, a, was a, a, a jihadist state, that is a state that was founded by clergymen to, and one of its goals is to purify Islam. But it was then in turn overthrown by another uh, cleric empire, the Tukula, and his parents were from both sides. He was a, he was he had uh, he had membership in both sides, and he told these complicated stories about um, how his 
uh, father, I think it's his father, was was apprenticed. That was hiding with a with a a, a butcher, I think it was. And uh, then he, he he's offered the chance to you know to, he's pardoned. He's he's under the authority of the of the other empire, the wrong empire, uh, for his patrilineage. And then he he gets. You know he's offered to freedom, but he says no. I'm, his honor requires that he stay with this man who was his, you know, really a function as his father. It's all very touching and very dramatic, and very well told. My suspicion is it's not entirely accurate because some of the events he describes later are also trying to be slightly embellished or dramatized. But they're they're good stories, and they are about. He knows the, the context he's talking about. He doesn't, it, you know. It's not like somebody, you know, from America or West Indies writing a historical novel, which has happened actually for this region. He's he is really telling from the inside. Even if it, he, he makes all kinds of what we would call essentialist claims, Africans have a, infallible memories, and we're an oral culture, and we never forget anything, and so on. Which is, you know, obviously not very plausible. And it turns out, in closer inspection, his own writings display what you would expect uh, to some extent that there's some deviations. And especially the story of von Grand, which is uh, who was a real who spent his whole life as a clerk. Well, that he's no the last part of his life he was an entrepreneur in the private sector, um, and that's a, a marvelous story, trickster story really, um, about a guy making his way, playing off the French, the politics, and so on. You get some of the same thing in his um, in, in his in his uh, memoirs about him, his own career, but. Um, it's much more dramatically presented in the in the in, in the Von Grand book, which was successful in terms of the publishing history. That was published before, actually, even in France, it was published before the Amkulel. Uh, Amkulel may have been actually he may have been already deceased when it actually came out. I'm not sure, but certainly the second volume kept published. The We Mankamadam was published after he died. But Von Grand is something that he actually Von Grand is a real person. And he and his, uh, he had one of his last wife, not his last wife, next to last wife, was French. He always had, he usually had, he had at some points in life the full complement of four wives for a Muslim. He was very interested in women. It makes it, you know, obvious. But this, this, this wife, the, the last one, she, she was a, a, a actually administrator. And she, I, she kept his papers together. I actually got to see them. Uh, after she died, but in an archive that she created. But she and he were a preface, they insisting that the, the, everything about Van Grand was true and so on and so forth. And, you know, just accept that almost as part of the narrative, <laughs> that it's insistence on its own truth. It's not. I mean, with Van Grand, I could really trace, you know, his, who he was, his career, and so on. I've written a couple of articles about him. And... <clears throat> But but he's a fat, but it still gives you fascinating insights into the possibilities, uh, and also the thing about von Gren is it 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 somehow it follows some of the contours of a, a regional epic, especially with the role of secrecy and you know, the vulnerability to secrecy and the way women are used use their seductive powers to get the secrets from their mates in, in, on behalf of the, the, their actual kin. And so when you have all of that in Von Gren, and but it worked out really beautifully in a kind of French colonial context. But he, you know, he wouldn't admit that. He would never say, well, this is a kind of a, a novel based on a real person. 
he insisted it was just was the story of a real person whom he actually had a, a relationship with. You know, he was, uh, you know, he, he, they both of them were informants for a French folklorist who um, who published a, a whole volume of, of stories and admits that these were his informants. Um, so it's a very interesting mixture of um, his kind of imagining. Uh, and, and recasting his life and the life of Van Grant in more literary, more dramatic terms. And yet you can learn a great deal about the actual social history of the French administration at its various levels. And, and the, chief, the chief, since his father was a chief who was deposed and then were exiled and in prison and all that, which is, you know, all I assume generally true, but the way he presented it just becomes extremely dramatic, and it's very, I mean, and, and very humorous. He's a, he's really has a great sense of humor. It's, it's a really there's some of the Weimar Commandant, <laughs> the last line of the book <laughs> is you know something really ridiculous is going on. The administrator has no idea what's actually happening and says what he thinks is going on, and he and Amiraba says Weimar Commandant. <laughs> <laughs> he's a dad. It's very, no, he's a, he's a, he has a. I mean, he, I, you can get his charm without having having met him from these stories. He was a really charming, interesting guy. He had, you know, he, he was also very involved in of trying to become a, a certain kind of Muslim. But that's a whole complicated story, which comes out. You don't see any of it in Ankulel for very little, mm-hmm. but. Uh, in the, but in Weimar Commandant, you, you get that too. The what he, he didn't have a standard Islamic education because there is. This is one of my favorite scenes also in, in the book. He's he's forcibly recruited into a French school because the person who's charged with recruiting him is an enemy of his family, and the worst thing he could do then is to be forced out of a Quranic school and could be sent to a French school. And he has this whole story about how he, you know. He's, he's he's being taken out and, and how the guy insults him and then he when he's dragged before the committee the commandant who's responsible for the sending these kids to school he denounces the guy who <laughs> recruited him and tells him all the things that he said against the French school because it, the guy was trying you know telling him you're going to have to drink pig's blood if you go to the French school blah blah and of course the French guy doesn't want to hear that <laughs> and it's not true actually I mean this French of course already had laicite. Uh, in that period, it's, these were schools run by um, the administration and by teachers who were probably Freemasons and so on, who were not the least bit interested in Catholicism or any other religion. Um, but, and in fact, there's in the in Weber and Commandant, there's actually a, a scene where he's in Burkina Faso and he, he has a battle with the local uh, bishop, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a very rich. Um, set of writings and uh, and very and very engaging even though it's a big fat book you can't put it down once you get into it <laughs> absolutely and he writes with um an italian you would say scorrevole it really flows um yeah. it's even though there's you know a lot of names and maybe things that uh if you're not from the region you're not totally familiar with you're immediately kind of plunged into the vivid uh, storytelling that that he has i i thought that um Jean, you could recount to us, there's this anecdote, I suppose, that um, Théodore Monon, who was his kind of patron, I suppose, or, or mentor, um, who was a French uh, anthropologist, historian, um, 
and really promoted his career. There's a story that he tells about Amadou Ampateba at the beginning um, as, a, as a preface to, to the memoir that I think really indicates the character um, and the talent of the storytelling and this building bridges um, that he had. Yeah, so I think one of the things about Amadou Hampateba, um, I think that everyone knows about and something I wrote about in my introduction is that he was constantly trying to, even though, even though as Ralph said, he had this sense of humor and there, there are these really, what I call a kind of polite hospitality in the books and where he gives these jabs at the same time. So it's a very, um, within the body of the book, it's sort of, um, I don't want to fall into the, uh, what do we call the essentialism of saying this is very African, but my theory is there's a kind of hospitality that welcomes you, the foreign reader into the book. And then while you're reading it, someone's going to say, Hey, look at that. Look at that thing that somebody did, or that silly, those silly things that the, that, that say the French did and that they didn't even know what was going on or see, this is why, colonialism was bad and here are the bad things that happened. But meanwhile, I'm gonna keep telling this nice story and I'm also gonna give you the footnotes that, that tell you all about you know, the, the culture. And I'm, a very, I'm gonna make this a very welcoming kind of environment for you, the, the reader, who's not necessarily always gonna be an African. But I think that's part of what he was interested in as a person, which was bridge building, even though he has the critical kinds of barbs against, uh, of course, against uh, colonial figures or administrative figures or people that, that might've deserved um, having a little bit of mockery. But he also wrote a book, which was called Jésus vu par un musulman. So Jesus uh, seen from the point of view of a Muslim. And he was very interested as a Sufi uh, Muslim in the, the kinds of relationships that could exist, could coexist between different religions and the religions of the book, for example, between Islam, between Christianity, Judaism. Um, and that's why I think Theodore Monod and he may have been friends. And that's what this reference is to um, uh, somehow they decided that they were going to go talk about the question of love to members of a mosque. And it's, it's not a very elaborate explanation. It's on page um, six in the preface. Um, but um, I, here's the quote on page five from Mono himself. He says, as a devout Muslim, he would always seek to discover justification in his faith for the caprices of faith, um, of fate, I'm sorry. But um, let's see here, I wanted to, yeah. Um, yeah, so for example, uh, I'm coming here for the correct part here. But anyway, they went to visit a mosque and um, the way in which, uh, Amadou Hampateba introduced the writings from a Christian saint was to kind of couch it in different terms. I think that's a, a sort of a more universal 
way of pre presenting um, the writings from St. Paul to members of a Muslim community. Um, and so I think that's just, um, you know, an aspect of his constant efforts at bridge building that, that continued on throughout his life. And Ralph, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the, the title um, of this memoir, Amkulel, The Fula Boy, which, which evokes uh, uh, L'Enfant Noir as a title, the, the book by Kamara Lai from the 1950s. What's, what is the title coming from in, in this book? And what do you think he might have been gesturing towards? Well, I mean, the Amkulel part is, there was a, a man named Kulel who was a retainer in, in the court of their stepfather. His mother remarried and she married a man who was a, a, a two-color prince, really, a high member of the royal family and so on, who had been a chief and then was deposed by the French and they went into exile. And, uh, but he always had a, the interesting his father had a court in, in both a literal and, and a sort of metaphorical sense. There were people who, who around him that he helped to support and, they also created a kind of culture, their own culture, even in urban colonial settings. And Kulel was part of this. He'd been a, a soldier in the previous regime, which suggests he was probably of servile origin, because um, that's how soldiers were largely recruited in the, these African empires. Um, but, uh, and Amkulel means little Kulel. And so he, he apprenticed himself to what was essentially a slave or, or sort of, you know, low social, low retainer, but a man who had great talent as a storyteller. And uh, he learned these stories and he, he always remained quite devoted to Kulel. So that's just, I mean, he, uh, you know, the Noir, of course, uh, is it written as quite literally for a French one. There's a whole controversy about that book and that career that I don't want to get into here, but, um, I've taught that book a lot. I mean, it does describe initiations and so on, which is very interesting because one of the things that happens to Humpty Bar is he doesn't get properly initiated, never has a proper initiation. He actually goes at one point because he, he's not even circumcised. And in a Muslim society, that makes you, infantilizes you, um, to say nothing of making you, that women will have nothing to do with you. Um, and so he, he gets himself... Uh, uh, surgically circumcised in a, by a French colonial doctor, <laughs> and but it's accepted by his family. They don't have a big celebration or a fairly modest one, but he is. It's accepted. But it, but it's interesting that the, the, if this is supposed to be a coming of age story of an African child missing the initiation, the whole elaboration of the initiation is a is a big gap. But he somehow manages to get around it and, and has no problem afterwards, uh, among thing, other things, having many wives in the course of his life um, and, and children. And I knew one of his daughters, at least, uh, of his last wife. That's the closest I ever came to meeting him. Um, and uh, he, so he, he uh, whereas the, the L'Enfant presents you kind of standard initiation, who knows if it's literally, but it's generic. I mean, it, uh, and so it's a much more, both of the books, are written to some extent with the idea of a European audience and kind of educating them. They're written in French in both cases. And the idea is, among other things, is to present to the, the non-African French-speaking audience, or later also English-speaking audience, mm -hmm. 
cases, um, you know, what African culture is like, that, that, that it really is a cultured society. And they both accomplish it, but in very different ways. I mean, Dark Child was written when the author was very young, uh, you know, just and was living in France and exile. All of these are not, these are very typical kind of colonial experiences um, of intellectuals, but, uh, how, and they're usually people of a certain generation who grew up after World War II, came of age after World War II, whereas Hampa de Ba is a much earlier generation of uh, African intellectuals who usually were much more mundane and sort of, you know, didn't really find their voice as easily. He, he found the real voice that was, you know, that expressed this kind of, uh, what we now say post-colonial theory, hybrid <laughs> kind of uh, identity or culture. And it, it, it's very successful. I mean, he is a, he's, a, he's one of a kind. I think there's nobody of his generation who writes as well as he does. Uh, and, the, and it's interesting, he writes in French. He, he, he had people correct his French, but we can see from the Monod correspondence that has survived that his French was quite good, but he was very careful. And he, the only thing that he wrote in uh, Fulfulme, his, his native language, was religious poetry, which is another interesting thing. I've, I, I mean, I've looked at it, but I can't do much with it, but some of it's been translated, and it's quite interesting. Uh, he, he was a very, he was a really... Uh, interesting uh, person. I mean, You're a real Renaissance man, if, if that term can be used. So someone polyvalent who worked well, and thought. I call that because it, the range of things he was interested in were things that you would encounter in an African context. And he wasn't, for instance, he never really knew Arabic very well. So from a point of view of Muslim, he wasn't really well educated. His teacher, Chenro Bukhar, who belonged to this uh, offshoot of the Tijani Sufi order and himself was persecuted and died young part as a result of that. And he himself, Hamdeba, was, you know, would have his administrative career would have had stopped at some point for the same reason. Um, but that the teaching of this guy was really not the standard, um, you know, going from the Quran to all these other hadith texts and so, so on and commentaries. He really taught in a much more, in an oral fashion, he wasn't really that much concerned with textuality. And he taught a lot of people who were not really very deeply involved in Islam. Bandiagara was not, uh, not a fully Muslim city. The, the Dogon people are there. They're, they are Muslim, but they're also very engaged in their uh, local religious beliefs, their, you know, their own traditional religious beliefs. And this fascinated Ampadipa, you know, to find, you know, this, and, and they sort of write in, in some of his religious texts, which are not nearly as engaging, frankly, including the Jesus, Vupan, Musliman, which I actually wrote it. First thing I ever wrote about Ampadipa was about that book. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not a, a profound, you know, book, but it does show again the this, the attempt. He was he was very ecumenical. He really tried to bring people together, and uh, he, I think he succeeds best when he's less conscious about it. When he's writing these narratives, the, the three volumes of the memoirs, the third volume, which I've seen but hasn't been published or translated, isn't as good as the others because it gets much more involved in politics. And it goes back a step. It goes back into the 30s, even though, the, as you said, the, the, what you translated ends in the early 40s. Uh, but then he goes back in this book, in the 
other book because there are all these quarrels among different groups and the Muslim groups and bringing in the French and it's a, almost a kind of sordid politics which he well I haven't studied those very closely I can't but and they're not at the moment they're not really available for us well let's let's get back to this question i suppose of of morality um that that you know i think is at the center of his legacy and 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 the complication of uh really i think kind of the transition of, of ways of transmitting and preserving knowledge that has happened throughout his lifetime um throughout the 20th century in west africa and and gene you as the translator of this work really have to struggle with um, being at this interface of a text, but a text that's born of oral traditions and that is deeply aware I of- that. I, w- I wouldn't say the text is born of oral tradition, although he uses the word, I would say oral history. Mm. And that is of stories he hears from people about his own life, about the, the stories he hears about the 19th century, but they're not, you know, they're not the distant past. They're really, they're, and they're very right. So not the tradition, the oral tradition of Vancina, but the tradition of um, relaying knowledge in oral forms. Let me put it that way, so it's confusing, and then and that means or that way um, of communication and of transmission. So, Jean, you're you're faced with this quite long manuscript. How do you begin going about it, and and what challenges do you encounter? I found that the that the language of this book was, we were already talking about how well his, his writing flows, how well, what a great storyteller he is, how entertaining it is. So when I was translating this, um, in contradistinction to the book that I translated before this, which was not his book, it was a different book in a different style, which was much more difficult, I thought, because the, the previous book that I had translated used a lot of slang um, and, it, and it jumped around quite a bit. It was it used a lot of allusions and things like that. This book, I think, has a kind of flow to it um, that I was able to, like I said, kind of immerse myself into the language of the text so deeply that I really, you know, you get this imaginary idea. And I think I said this in my my introduction that you're, well, there was, you know, the teaching from the Fula teaching that I repeated, I think in, in my introduction, which was, um, you, you have to, if you want to, I'll just read it. Um, and this was on page 29 of my um, introduction. Um, and he said, he, it, my introduction says, he believed that in order for cross-cultural dialogue to take place, it was necessary to be able to listen to one another. But he also insisted that non-Africans would need to set aside preconceived notions about Africa, quote, in order to become pupils who know absolutely nothing, end quote. For A.H. Bott was the collected and as yet little known traditional knowledge of Africa that could help teach the future citizens of the world. To emphasize this point, he was fond of repeating the following admonition translated from the wise initiates of the African bush, which he called Labus, to those who would seek to discover their knowledge. And here's the quote. If you want me to teach you, you must stop being you to be me. Forget yourself in order to be me. Otherwise, if you keep being you, although we are face to face, we will be as distant from one one another as the sky is from earth. This means that you must not take what I'm going to tell you and compare it to what you already know. You must empty yourself of what you know in order to learn. 
that is when you are told that you must know that you do not know. And then he quotes from uh, Fool Fool Day, Anda a Anda. The full expression says, Sa Andi a Anda a Andat. If you know that you do not know, you will know. Sa Anda a Anda an, uh, Andata. If you do not know that you do not know, you will not know. <laughs> so I, uh, say this in my introduction, he says, stop being you to be me, forget yourself in order to be me. So um, that was kind of, you know, you'd have to think it's very odd for a woman, a white woman from North America would be somehow taking on this voice of Amadou Hampateba from Mali. I mean, that's what the magic part of translation is, I think. So I found it um, very enjoyable. Uh, the other thing that made it so enjoyable was um, a grant for a fellowship from the Camargo Foundation, in, which is located in the south of France, where they treat translators as artists who need time to work. I got a fellowship to stay there. I had my own apartment. All, all I had to do every day while I was there was translate. That was all I had to do. And it, I mean, there's no better way to go about, I think, um, you know, working on something like this. So I, that, you know, it was very enjoyable. That's all I, you know, I can say about it. Well, we're very grateful that you uh, did that work, that you toiled day in and day out so that <laughs> we can diffuse this, um, this text more widely. I think as we come to a close here, I'd love to ask both of you what projects you're currently working on or, or upcoming projects. Um, what, what do we have to look forward to? So Ralph, what are you working on? I'm working on a very long book about uh, colonialism, what's called The Road to Pope's Coloni Coloniality. It's about the relationships between Europe and the larger world uh, in uh, tropical Africa, uh, South Asia, and the French and British Caribbean. And I, I'm not sure I'll ever finish it, but I'm teaching a course on it right now. Uh, so I have, but this, I think this is the last course I'll ever teach and maybe then I'll concentrate more and actually finally finish this book. But that's my big project. So at the super global scale. And, and Jean? So I've started um, Oui Mon Commandant, the translation of that book, and it's just as long as Amkulel. <laughs> so um, I've had a very busy semester, so I haven't made as much progress on the project as I want to, to do, but I'll be leaving on May the 4th to go to France, and I'm going to be going to uh, La Bibliothèque Nationale. I'll be going back to the Archive d'Outre-mer, um, and um, I I'm hoping to, you know, to have more time over the summer to, to really get into the flow of this next book. But um, that's what I'm working on at the moment. So we'll have some more memoirs of Amadou Hampateba to look forward to translated uh, into English. Thank you both for your time today. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you and, and paying tribute um, to this man. And I hope that we can speak about your future projects on the New Books Network soon. Thank you so Inshallah. much for having us. Inshallah. <laughs>